Deezer Originals. Now, it's time for Strong and Stable. Strong and Stable, 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 Strong and Stable. Strong and stable. Strong and Hello stable. Hello and welcome to Strong and Stable, the topical podcast that no longer costs 55 pence a minute to listen to and will still be an absolute shambles. I'm your host Aisha Hazarika and in the news this week, the new UKIP leader Henry Bolton said he could strangle a badger with his bare hands. Clearly a dig at former leader Paul Nuttall, who actually invented badgers. The government denied that it has a let-them-eat-cake attitude to universal credit claimants, especially as cake will not be available for the first six weeks. And a red sun appeared over most of the UK, except on Merseyside, where it's banned. And helping me peer through the apocalyptic gloom of this week's news are our guests. Helen Lewis is a journalist and the deputy editor of The New Statesman. And I really, really wanted to make a Helen Lewis and the News joke, but I just couldn't get it to work, even when I used the power of love. Helen, I'm so sorry they made me do that gag. (laughs) Anna Supri is the Conservative MP for Broxstow. Anna once accused Boris Johnson of putting his leadership ambitions ahead of Britain's future. Although that's not saying much, as Boris puts his annual trip to the hairdressers ahead of Britain's future. And Fred McCauley, a comedian and radio presenter. Fred is known for his humorous exploits in age of charitable causes, including singing in Comic Relief Does Fame Academy and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Although there's one humorous challenge for a needy cause he has turned down, and that's managing Scotland's football team. (laughs) Welcome, dear guests. Hello, how are you all? Hello, very well, thank you. Well, thank you for coming. Terrible puns. I know, I'm sorry, they make me do do it. it. They just make me do it. I'm just sitting here like in sort of comedy slavery. They make (laughs) me, they won't feed me otherwise, Anna. And I have to say, as uh, I was telling people I was coming to this podcast, I was at a do with lots of Labour staffers. And do you know what the enduring meme was? I love Subas. I love, you you have so many. Subs. Subs. Do you know how popular you are amongst kind of Labour people in a really weird way? It's quite quite funny, really, isn't it? It just shows you the whole world has gone completely mad. Uh, (laughs) And it shows, actually, the complete meltdown that is occurring in both of the two main political parties. And that means, frankly, great for all those people who are watching politics and commentating on politics. Pretty rubbish, I think, for the people of this country. But it also says anything but anything could happen. The other message that I've had is a really special request is that Anna the Soups has got the best voice in politics. So I've just been asked to ask you to say two words. Hard Brexit. I should try and do my Margaret Thatcher impersonation. <laughs> a hard Brexit. Oh, that bad. was so scary. <laughs> and can I just say, actually, um, it's only a matter of time till I do get the Scotland job. Everybody gets a turn. <laughs> Have you had the call yet? Uh, no, but I know very little about football, so I'm the perfect candidate. Have you started your own petition? No, but you've known me for years, uh, Aisha, and uh, the, there is a great Scotland chant which is mathematically we might still qualify. <laughs> uh, sadly, it no longer applies to the current World Cup. So this week, David Davis played down Amber Rudd's claim that a no-deal Brexit would be unthinkable 
as that would suggest some level of thought. While Chris Grayling claimed that the UK would produce more food in the event of a no-deal Brexit, namely humble pie and the egg dripping off Theresa May's face. <laughs> Liam Fox accused the BBC of reporting Brexit with a tone of self-defeating pessimism, which is strange, as I could have sworn that the BBC's motto is Nation shall speak truth unto nation, not Nation shall speak airbrushed, fluffed up, pro-Brexit version of the truth unto government. Still, it's not just the right who are complaining about bias in journalism right now. The explosion in public opinion is problematic, wrote Owen Jones in a 1,000-word opinion piece for The Guardian. (laughs) So, dear guests, how do you feel about a no-deal Brexit? Anna, I'd like to start with you. Well, here's a surprise. I think a no-deal Brexit would be the very worst outcome for our country. It's bad enough that we're leaving the European Union, but to leave without any deal is the stuff of complete madness. I think, to be fair, Amber said that it was unthinkable that we wouldn't get a deal on security. She was talking about that. Um, And I think we will get something on security, but it's the idea we would crash out onto WTO World Trade Organization rules without a proper trading arrangement in place. I mean, I have the perfect solution. What is that? Take it off the shelf. Very simple and easy. We stay a member of the customs union. We stay in the single market. We do the best thing by our economy, by the future of our country. It's all there for the taking. If only the government could have the courage to do that. Oh, that sounds quite revolutionary. Why not go one step further and just stay in Europe altogether? (laughs) Because unfortunately, we had this thing called a referendum. Uh, And when we voted to have a referendum, and people of all parties voted for a referendum, we said we would be bound by the result. And even though... I voted against my conscience mm-hmm. and against everything I've ever believed in. I had to, and rightly, be true to the promise I made to the people of Broxstow that whatever the result, I would adhere to that result and I would honour it. And that's why we're leaving. But the thing about referenda is that you, you have a result and then you, you stick with it for a small period of time and then you think about having another one. That's the way we're doing it in Scotland. <laughs> yeah, but you've rejected the second referendum very sensibly. Well, well, it's, it's just been put in the shelf for a wee while. <laughs> but one of the things I just want to actually turn to Helen about is that there's been a lot of criticism about how the media is dealing with uh, Brexit. Liam Fox seems to think that the BBC stands for Brexit. Brexit bashing corporation. Do you think the media have been a bit Ramoni, Helen? I think certainly most journalists live in London, have degrees, uh, and therefore are all the cultural stereotypes you associate with Remainers. I think probably the vast majority of people working in the media probably did work. Do you know any journalists that you hang around with that are friends that voted Brexit? Yeah, I do. I do. do. And and I'm sure there are... So, I mean, I think it's very difficult to separate out what the kind of cultural background of journalists is. And actually, I think that, you know, we'd all agree that is too homogenous from the way that they report. I think actually the BBC, if you're going to have criticisms of it during the referendum campaign, it's that it was huge biased towards Brexit because what it did is you had one economist who thought Brexit was a brilliant idea it was Patrick Minford he was the one and then you had literally all the other economists who said this is a terrible idea and what was your debate it was two economists it was Patrick Minford versus one person standing for the rest of them you know science is exactly the same it's like putting one climate change denier up against the entire weight of scientific opinion. All this. So what they did is they did this on the one hand, on the other hand stuff. And and because they couldn't really f- kind of commit themselves to saying, no, 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 there is such a thing as reality and it has a, a pro-Remain <laughs> bias, they ended up being unduly well, even-handed. They, they kind of pioneered alternative facts, didn't they? And of course, we did have Michael Gove saying, oh, we've had enough of these experts. But Fred, in the world of comedy okay. and the stand-up circuit, you know, do you feel there's a balanced view out there 
or is everybody a Ramona who's a comedian and influencer as well? I would say the majority clearly is. Uh, and similarly, in the, at the time of the Scottish referendum, <laughs> the majority was very much in favour of independence for Scotland in the, you know, in the people in the stand-up world. And you know, just back in August, Edinburgh Fringe, even then I would ask an audience, you know, saying to them that look, we are clearly in a democracy. Is there anybody in here? Did you vote leave? And out of maybe 150 people, you'd get one or two, at which point I would invite them to leave. <laughs> it's, it's what you voted for. Don't let us keep you back. Uh, out you go. But, uh, but I, didn't, I didn't really see the, the BBC as, as being biased towards Brexit. I mean, I, that, that kind of skipped no. by me, Helen. Yeah, I think it's, it's the idea of false equivalence, and it's the same thing you saw with um, Trump versus Clinton. If you look at the coverage, you had kind of, Donald Trump has done, insert list of enormously long thing, Hillary Clinton used a private email server, and they were all, you know, it was always kind of like, well, we've done one Trump scandal, so now we have to do a Hillary scandal. And I think yeah. that's, that's the difficulty of it, is actually the hardest bit of journalism is about your editorial decisions in terms of what stories you cover and how much prominence Absolutely. you give them. It's not necessarily about writing, you know, people, everyone right. thinks immigrants are bad. It's whether or not you do a drip, drip, drip of mm-hmm. daily stories going, hey, look at this exceptional case of an immigrant who did something bad, builds up a picture in people's minds. Right. And that's why I think that, that's where I think the bias came. But do you think that it is possible to be a journalist and have kind of neutrality? Because it's, you know, if you are going to be a journalist, it's the kind of human condition to have a strong opinion. Do you think it's possible? But the one thing you can always be is curious. And actually, that's the mark of a bad journalist and a bad writer is somebody who's not fundamentally curious about the world and doesn't ever think, what if I'm wrong? I mean, I I try and ask myself, like, once a week, I presume Brexit will be a disaster. At at, at most, you know, at best, I think it will be a long, drawn-out process that leads us into a probably mildly worse place than we were before and and a lot of other things will get neglected. But I do try and sit down and go, okay, what what if I'm wrong? And I think that's the thing that I, I would mark out the difference. Everybody's got opinions. It's about whether or not how rigid and doctrinaire you are about assuming that you have all yeah, the answers. I, I covered the miners' strike when I was you know, a journalist at Central TV. And my own views, nobody's interested in my views. And I, you, know, you step back, you're detached, uh, and you are able to present the facts. I think yep. the, the trouble is when you get into commentators and more nuanced arguments. But certainly in terms of reporting your story, absolutely. I'm not interested in your views. Everyone expects you to have an opinion, but it's just the, you know, the bottom line. Is, is it going to cloud your analysis? And as long as that doesn't happen, then that's fair. And Fred, um, when I was at the Edinburgh Festival this year, um, I took part in the session about sort of satire and comedy and politics. And one of the things that came up was, um, should comedians have a bit, you know, if they believe in something, should they have a responsibility to sort of push a certain political argument or a certain view of the world? I think undoubtedly they do, yeah. I mean, um, I did a couple of documentaries about where people are getting their information from um, because the news is so skewed one way or another. And over in the States, certainly, you know, The Daily Show and all these other programmes are where a lot of people get their information from now. Um, and that has, you know, that is, that's skewed as well, but it's just happened to be skewed in a, a more popular way, I would say. But I think if you've got an opinion as a comedian, then that's you, you've got to push it. And but what, again, it's that narrowness, isn't it? It's about the kind of. I just. I think one of the things I would find very difficult if I was a comedian is the kind of constant encroaching sense. No, no, this is sacred, and we can't joke about this. And you must have this issue with with Jeremy Corbyn. Some people will say, but he's a he's a good man and he's doing good things. So don't don't undermine him as if as if doing jokes about times that he you know something amusing happens to him is is in some way betraying the project. Mm-hmm. Do you get Helen, that? I get it. All. Welcome to my yeah. world. No, Welcome yeah. to my world. I had to host the gala dinner at the Labour Party conferences here. And I thought they'd made some mistake. I thought they were going to have to get the canary to check all my jokes before I went on stage. But thankfully, that did not happen. 
Now, <laughs> channeling her inner Jan Ravens and her inner Sinead O'Connor, it's our Prime Minister, Theresa May. It's been 15 months and 19 days since we voted to go away. We used to skip and jump and play all day, then we took our ball away. Since you've been gone, we can buy whatever we want. We can keep out whomever we choose. We can sell our pig's ears to some other trading block. But nothing, I said nothing beats your cars and booze. I said nothing compares, nothing compares to the EU. We'll be so helpless without you here, like a Brussels without a sprout. Nothing can stop these hard-right fools from winning, fools from winning. Tell me, Jean-Claude, why did we vote out? I could reach out my hand to Donald Trump, you see. But they'd only remind me he's crude. I went to Dr Liam and guess what he told me? Guess what he told me? He said, girl, the single market is done. The customs union too. Oh, God, we're screwed. Because nothing compares. Nothing compares to the EU. Theresa May there, the artist formerly known as the Prime Minister with a working majority. Strong and stable. So, Hillary Clinton was in the UK this week and although she broke her toe while she was here, which is presumably God's way of telling her not to stand again, the Russians have denied any involvement in any way. Nigel Farage, meanwhile, said that Clinton should recognise that it's over and stand down. You know, there's nothing like being mansplained to by a man who stood for election seven times and lost every single time. So... Hillary Clinton said this week that the only way to get sexism out of politics is to get more women into politics. Anna, is she right? Look, I, I'm a big fan of Hillary Clinton um, and we do need more women in politics and we need good role models as well. I think my only comment about Hillary is that it actually boiled down to Hillary in the end. That's why she lost because unfortunately she stood by her man and she should have broken free from her man and she should have con condemned the stuff that Bill did when he think was present to really be her own woman. Do you think that's really the thing that brought her down in the end? Yeah. I do, actually, because she, I think it showed a flaw in her and it looked like she was just going to be Bill Mark II and she wasn't the great strong woman, which I think she is, and she was overly processed as well. So, so she Helen. never really smacked it back to Trump. She should have taken no shit from Trump. And she did. She <laughs> I, I was mean, too good. She was too goody. She was too controlled. Yeah, I did like... When she did that tweet where she just said, delete your account, that was maybe my favourite Hillary moment of the election. But I don't think we can discount the sexism as a thing. I think the problem is that I think there is just... There are people who just have a kind of reflexive kind of Pavlovian jerk whenever she mentions sexism. Because there are other problems as well. And they think if you acknowledge that, then you're saying there aren't any other problems. But also we should... I think we should acknowledge white resentment as a huge motivating factor in some of those, some of those states. Because actually, if you look at Trump's performance, the fascinating thing is he did about as well as you'd expect a generic Republican candidate to do. He didn't ride in on some amazing populist surge. Actually, after two terms of a Democrat, he did about as well as you, you would expect. Mm. And just, look, we, all three of us women, Fred is like the token man in the room right now. <laughs> so this is what it feels like. <laughs> yes, yeah. this is what structural oppression feels right. like. What's it like being the only man in the room? Never mind more women in politics. I think you need one more woman in podcasts. <laughs> Well, I'm trying to fight that going. Now, we have all been in politics in various ways. And I think part of the problem is that there is still a lot of structural 
sexism in politics. I mean, that phrase in the room, I've actually written a whole show about it. I think in quite a lot of the meetings I was in, there weren't a lot of women in the room. Anna, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I just honestly have never found a problem in the Tory party, genuinely. Um, I'm not saying they haven't found a problem in Parliament, uh, and I think that some of the some men in Parliament on all sides are overly ag- aggressive. They've got far, far too much testosterone and they need to grow up. But um, actually in the Tory party, I mean, I have to say, we, you know, first woman leader, Tory and Prime Minister, and now the second. And I, I personally have never found it a problem. And I, I left the Tory party for about 25 years and came back, but I, ne- I never found it a problem. One of the things I think is, is different about the Tory party, and I remember having this conversation with quite senior female Labour politicians is that Tory party's got kind of a model for what a strong woman looks like right it's got that iron lady archetype and that's why there was all that stuff when Theresa May came in and you know I think about women to win and about what Baroness Anne Jenkins of the Tory party has done with that there is a kind of model of a kind of battle axe right in, in the nicest possible way in the, but you know what I mean I think that, but, I, but the Labour that's a horribly sexist expression I am an aspirant battle axe I live one day to be a battle axe um, but do you I, know who I live to be Baroness Trumpington yeah well, she's marvellous but, no, 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 but, but whereas in Labour but there is no model of no, that. No, there's a problem that. in Labour. It, it's like the great Jess Phillips said, the biggest sexists are actually the hard left. And there always has been. I'm old enough to have been involved in politics back in the, dare I say, the 70s. Mm-hmm. And the left, there were hardly any great strong women in, in the left. And there was this problem with that old, the old sort of clause force, Stalinist, you know, yeah. we used to call them tankies. They used to rumble around, often Scots. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but they, you know, I, no, I was Anna's involved really going for it now. I, I mean, in, she's not holding back. I was back. involved in Scottish politics, uh-huh. and I'm very odd because I was a an English Tory that won an election in Scotland in the early eighties. This was obviously a huge shock, Stirling University, mm-hmm. and it, a lot of it was because the main opponent was one of those old tanky sort of, you know, not very out of the mains. Yeah, and, and on social justice, what's this weird woman? You know, she should be in the kitchen but, making you Anna, know, what I would what I would stuff. say on that, I, I agree. I think the Labour Party has got a clearly a weird blind spot on women leadership. Some at Labour Party conference we had a meeting, right, a load of women, and we said, How do you think we could ever get a female leader? Do you think we can have an all women shortlist? And someone went, I think Jeremy would still win, to be honest. <laughs> this is strong and stable. So obviously the world's been rocked by these shock revelations that a revolting old movie mogul um, has allegedly been up to um, no good. But it's opened up a bigger conversation about sexism in all of these industries. And lots of um, people have come out. And (laughs) my favourite, this is uh, Gronya Maguire did a great tweet saying, put Woody Allen, the one celebrity who definitely can't use as the father of a daughter line to prove he cares about women because he ended up marrying his own daughter. Now, Fred, you are the dad of daughter, of a daughter. Yeah, daughter yeah. How do you feel about the prospect of your daughter going out into the sexist world? Um, concerned, obviously, you know, as a, as, as a father of a daughter. Uh, and I, can I just say I love her very much. No intentions of marrying her under any circumstances. <laughs> she's, she's 31 years old. She's been in the workplace uh, a, a long time. She hasn't come to me with any tales of, of sexism. I, uh, I've been hearing people all this week with the hashtag Me Too saying, what, what are men saying about this? I've heard people saying, well, you know, back when I started work in the late 70s and 80s, it was a different climate and things went on. And I've been racking my brains and I don't think I've ever seen anything or been involved in anything that I would think would be criminal, which is what these guys are up to. But, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting is actually you were all shocked for a while, for a couple of days, we're all in kind of, you know, social media shock, but then the world moves on. 
And I was pretty shocked by James Corden, who decided to kind of laugh it up yeah. in terms of what, as a comedian, what did you think of that? Well, the, most, well the, the second most shocking thing about that was that he was described as a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I've got to see. I've got to uh, read uh, this tweet out. Um, somebody said it's nice to see James Corden finally getting the recognition he deserves. <laughs> well, you know, interestingly, Michael Shea uh, discussed uh, Weinstein and made jokes about it on Saturday Night Live. Now, Michael Shea is a brilliant stand-up. I've had the pleasure of working with him several times over the years. Um, but, you know, he is... Uh, and it's a word that I've used. He's, he's invested in his comedy. And people Corbin's, always go that, don't uh, they? They do that. You, oh, Oops. no, you, now you can't um, joke about anything. And it's like, well, no, you can't make lazy jokes uh-huh. about stuff. Right. And that's and actually what people yes. are attacking there is bad comedy. And exactly. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get anybody, a, a true stand-up, coming out 24 hours later and saying I'm sorry I'm really you know holding yeah, your hand up absolutely. they were committed to they were committed to their material yes, yeah. he wasn't yeah. now it's time to go over to our roving reporter Jonathan Pye and just a warning Jonathan's report does contain usage of the C word no not Corden with calls for President Trump to apologise for his remarks we now go to our Washington correspondent John Whitechapel Sir tough to find the words sometimes isn't it you know the 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 right words to to sum up trump i mean i mean the right words you know i mean every week i find it harder and harder and harder to find the words i mean this week is it's it's like any other isn't it in a week where the president of the united states demonstrated that he doesn't actually know which bits of the planet he is president of a week where he joked in public about his vice president wanting to hang all gay people Depressing? Is that the right word? It's depressing how bad he is. You know, whatever your politics, right wing, left wing, red state, blue state, he transcends all of that. He transcends politics because he's not a politician. He doesn't have a diplomatic bone in his body. He doesn't possess a single tactful atom. And and the lies, the blatant lies. This week, he lied about how he's the best at phoning the parents of dead soldiers and then demonstrated he isn't by consoling a dead soldier's parent by saying, well, he knew what he signed up for. I mean, coming from Trump, that is amazing because he clearly didn't know what he was signing up for. He doesn't know how the office of the president works. He doesn't know how an international treaty works. He doesn't understand how Congress works, how the law works. He doesn't understand how to behave properly. He's, 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 I've got it, I've got it, I've got it. I found the words. He's a lying, ignorant cunt. There you go. What? Yeah, yeah I know it's offensive. Good. It's meant to be. If there's a more offensive word, please let me know, because he'll be that too. Whatever the word is, it will be appropriate to Trump. He lied about how he's the best at phoning the parents of dead soldiers and then joked about hanging gay people. He's a cunt. Thanks, John. Well, closer to home. to Strong and stable. Now... Donald Trump is 71, although, of course, his wife and his hair are much younger. (laughs) But over in Austria, Sebastian Kurtz is set to become the world's youngest leader. Kurtz is only 31, which surely offers hope to ambitious and politically engaged young people everywhere. Although in bad news, he may be about to form a coalition with former Nazis. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. It gives a whole new meaning to the word Hitler Youth, to be honest. Now, guests... What do we think about the cult of youth in politics? Anna, I'd like to start with you. Does age matter in politics? No, it shouldn't matter, young or old. The thing is, though, obviously, if you're young, you don't tend to have the experiences. 
um, as somebody who is much older. And, and whilst I don't have a problem with younger people coming into politics, and good luck to them, I do want to see more people who are not career politicians. I want people with more life experiences. I would say that, given I'm 60, and I've only been in Parliament seven years, and I did two other things beforehand. But no, in all seriousness, um, it's, it's about balance, isn't it? And should, there exactly should be right. no bar... Whatever your age is, young or old, and you know some of the best people in Parliament, some of the wisest and the most strong are people like, of course, the great Ken Clark, seventy-seven. But also, I think that, I think you're right in that it's a balance because you're actually having again, it's the same thing. You talk about diversity in journalism, <laughs> cognitive diversity, and just diversity of life experiences is really important. One of the things that always used to really irritate me when you'd have a question time and they talk about housing, for example, is that the, the voice of people who rented was never there, right? Because everybody on that panel would own a house because, and, and almost, you know, MPs, most of them have, have two homes, you know, and, and own two homes no, often we or, or, well... Sorry. So, okay. no, seriously, we really don't own two homes. No, but okay, so own uh, one home no, and, 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 well, no, we don't. and rent, no, no, no. We don't. And we rent one. Yeah. Which you pay for, which we're very grateful for. It's been Spanish. And then we have one home. But what I mean is I think that gives you a different... Um, I think if you, if you, particularly if, if you are in the private rented sector and that's your only sort of... You don't have any capital in a house, that gives you a very different experience. And actually it's really important to have that experience represented. So that's why I'm really happy there are quite some younger MPs whose friendship groups will probably be people who are yeah, all in that kids. private I mean, rented sector. My children are 26 and 27, so I get a lot of stuff back from them. And Fred, don't you think, though, we, it's an amazing situation that all our political leaders are quite elderly at the moment. I mean, I'm not saying that they're all not getting on a bit, are. but, you know, 68, David Davis is looking like kind of a child prodigy in the Tory party. What do you think about that? Do you think it's good to have? Because remember, we had a generation of quite young guys. We had Cameron yeah, and Clegg guys, in the yeah. early 40s. Guys, they were guys. So when I were a lad, you know, oh, growing back up, in day. yeah, I mean, you know, Harold Wilson, Jim Callaghan, um, Michael Foote... Yeah, they were all ancient, you know, they were old. But you appreciate that they'd had, as Anna was saying, the, the life experience. Uh, Kurtz, I'm not so sure about. I mean, I, it's a dreadful thing to do, but I just took a look at his photo and I thought, oh, I don't like the look of him. Why? You know, I don't like him. He, look, he looks like somebody that just failed narrowly to get the, the part of the American psycho. <laughs> you know? he's, he's like Conway in House of Cards. I, I just, seven years at university without getting a degree and this guy's now going to be leader of a, a, of a mm. European country. It's all a bit concerning. It, it is much more whether or not you can connect with people and whether you actually listen and have normal friends and, and you understand what's going on, whatever your age may and that be. And that quite can be an ageless quality. I mean, Fred, Mary Black in yes. the SNP, she's very young, uh -huh. she's very popular. What do you think of her? I, I'm growing to like Mary very much. Um, you know, I was going to say that what you want in a young politician is somebody that is very clear in their, their outlook, somebody that's got strong opinions, perhaps a bit visionary. Is that a bit much to ask as well? I'm steady. Mary, I mean, when she when she came to the fore, I mean, uh, there was all the stuff about the tweets she had made, which was great fodder for me as a stand-up, you know, um, to, to use a, another expletive. She had tweeted a, a number of years ago that the nuns can get to fuck, right? <laughs> now, I didn't know whether she meant that the nuns should Anna is looking quite bewildered at this stage <laughs> well, I'm not quite uh, I, she, got over the C word which uh, I absolutely hate I don't mind the F word that's right, right, which uh, was an entirely correct up, opinion woke up this morning with what was it two two cans of lager uh, a slice of pizza and more money than I went out with last night hashtag result <laughs> It was and that great, is quite right? good. That was now, good. Uh, and if you don't like the C word, trunt, just use that, Anna. <laughs> that, that, that covers covers it nicely. Do you think you can be too old for politics? Don't think so, no. 
And, uh, you know, as long as you've still got your faculties. And your teeth. Well, that's, you're, you're, that's dis- true, you're disadvantaging a lot of old Scottish people then. <laughs> you know, we've, we've lost them by the time we're 40. <laughs> I, I, I don't think you can be too old. I, I, I think, again, like we've said many times today, a balance. You know, some old, some young. Maybe there should be an average age for a politician. Or maybe so, you have to have a mix. Maybe you should have a mix. Yeah. If you've got a leader, you should an older leader, maybe you should have a younger deputy. But turning to America, I mean, we've just had... You know, we've got Trump, we had Bernie Sanders, Hillary. Do you think the Democrats need to look for somebody who is just much younger to, to inject sort of fresh blood in the next round of elections? Yes, they do. But the problem is that they're stuck. They're still stuck. And actually, the fact that Bernie's talking about running again is a kind of an extraordinary thing. The, the problem is, and this comes back to the Hillary problem, about the fact that she um, has had all this, you know, she is Hillary Clinton, and lots of people have strong opinions on that. The, the, the problem is that could anybody who hadn't been married to a previous president have got into the position that she did? And that's the that's the real problem, is that because they don't have the quite the same cabinet system in the way that we do. I mean, they do have a cabinet, but it doesn't work quite the same way. It's quite hard for people to get... Um, name recognition. So there's lots of younger Democrats who are kind of kicking round, but they, in terms of national name recognition, no. And you have the money, amount of money you have to spend in a presidential campaign is in, in absolutely incredible. What about young Kennedy? There must be Kennedys coming through the photos, or not? Well, there's, there's always a Kennedy cursed. kicking yeah. about, isn't there? Well, look. On that note, I think we are going to have a surge of youth in politics. Obviously, we've got Sebastian Kurtz. We've just had that woman who's going to be the Prime Minister in New Zealand. And it will reassure everybody hugely to remember that Kim Jong-un is only 34. Strong and stable. Right, we are now reaching the end of the show and we have a very exciting game to play. Are you excited? Are you excited? The game is called... Who said it this week? Okay. Right. I am going to start with you, Anna. Who said, or rather, who called Labour supine invertebrate protoplasmic jellies for refusing to rule out paying a £100 billion Brexit bill? Our Foreign Secretary, one Boris Johnson. Ding! Correct. That's right. Supine invertebrate protoplasmic jellies. If you catch them live, they're amazing. I saw them at Glastonbury. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, Fred Macaulay, who said he knew what he signed up for? That was uh, the aforementioned Trunt. Can I, can I, and also, you know, I... You know that I was an accountant for a number of years and I know all these delaying tactics. So when he stood the other day and said, I've written to these people and and the letters will go out today or or tomorrow, do you know what that means? It's on his to-do list. (laughs) He hadn't written that letter at that time. It it was Donald, who, who, I don't know if you know this, but I mean, his his mother was a a Scot. Yes. Yes. His grandmother was a Macaulay. (gasps) <gasps> from the same village in the Western Isles as my great-grandfather. No, we're not, thankfully. Right. No, it's clo- but trust me, I've, I've spent hours in the Registrar of Scotland's <laughs> offices researching. Just going, please don't not. make us related. You don't have the look of a trend. No, we don't. I'm from a family of very proud, bald men. Also, can I see your hands just to check the size? Massive. They're massive. massive. <laughs> we can definitely confirm there is no genetic connection. Unfortunately, I've got a small winky. <laughs> And all your own teeth. (laughs) And all your own teeth. Now, Helen, Mm -hmm. this is very exciting. Who, or more precisely, what, said NATO has been the linchpin and institutional expression of American imperialism? 
I hate myself for knowing this. I hope you realise I that. love the fact that you do. <laughs> it's the Young Labour Students Group who passed a motion condemning our membership of NATO. Yeah, <laughs> well done, Helen. This week, Young Labour voted to leave NATO. I didn't even realise they were in NATO, honestly. <laughs> the cheeky little on the Security Council. I know. One minute they're with their fidget spinners and getting off with each other. Next, it's like, ooh, let's all turn our back on multilateralism. I mean, that's how it goes. And uh, Fred, finally, who said, to be clear... Sexual assault is no laughing matter. Gosh. James Corden. No, it wouldn't have been James. Oh, maybe it was in his apology, but it yeah. was just, I was thrown by the to be clear because that's usually how Theresa May start, starts her sentences. I'm very clear. You was, are correct. It was James Corden who said to be you, clear Anna, sexual assault is no laughing matter after making his hugely unfunny, disastrous Harvey Weinstein jokes as he tried to laugh it up. James Corden admitted to being addicted to being unfunny and promised to check his career into <laughs> rehab and begged for a second chance. And that's all we have time for now. Well, until Extra Strong, Extra Stable, which you can listen to on Monday, only on Deezer. Many thanks to our fantastic guests, Helen Lewis, Anna Subri and Fred McCauley, to Jan Ravens and Jonathan Pye, and to our writers, Andrea Mann, Robin Flavel and Dan Bowman. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you've listened to it. And well, if you haven't, well, we're terribly sorry, but I'm afraid 52% of you voted for it. That's democracy. You'll just have to put up with it. That's it for this series, but don't worry if the world continues to go to hell in a handcart. The chances are we'll be back to help make the journey that wee bit less bumpy for all of us. Until then, goodbye. That was Strong and Stable. We'll catch you next time. Please subscribe. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.